We've been in the book of Jonah. We've done uh, three sermons in chapter one. And now chapter two, we're going to do the whole thing because it's a poem that Jonah wrote while he was in the belly of the great fish. And I'm going to read that passage to you. And in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read it? This is Jonah's prayer. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deeps surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So Jonah had been doing his best uh, to flee from God's call to go to this very wicked city of Nineveh. It was about 500 miles from his home in Joppa. And when the ship he hired was engulfed in a storm, the pagan captain and all the crew were on the deck praying while Jonah was as asleep in, in the belly of the boat. There's no, once he was wakened by the captain, there's no record of him offering any prayer then. Well, and how could he pray? Because prayer means going into the presence of God, and that's what he was fleeing from. That's why when people ask you to pray for them and you're prompted to pray for a person, you should ask the person if you can pray for them right then and there. Because prayer brings a sense of the presence of God. Have you ever noticed that? When you, especially, you know, I really notice it more with people that aren't churchgoers. You know, when I'll stop and pray with them, they, they know something is happening beyond what we can see. Unless, of course, their hearts are extremely hardened. Pray as God leads you, and it's going to bring about a whole new perspective on life for them. Jonah knew the only way to stop the storm was to have him tossed into the sea. The mariners were reluctant. They tried not to do it. They tried to row away, but finally they gave in because the more they tried, the worse the storm got. So they finally tossed him into the sea. And when the ocean instantly calmed down, they knew that the God of Jonah, who Jonah said was the creator of land and sea, was the real God. In fact, they were converted. They were Jonah's first converts, these Gentile mariners, because they prayed to, the scripture says, Yahweh, the, the God of the Hebrews, the true God. They made vows and sacrifices to him. 
And that gives us hope that even when God's disciplining us, we can be a witness, even in the midst of the discipline, and even see souls come to him in the process. Jonah was tossed into the raging waves, and a fish appointed by God swallowed him up. I, I, you know, I wonder if the mariners witnessed that. I, I've been in, in fairly big waves, and you, it's, you just bob on the sea like a cork. And so they would have seen him, you know, and the ocean would have been starting to calm down, and then they see this big fish come and devour him. Talk about putting the fear of God in you that the God of the Hebrews was that upset with his prophet that he would cause a storm and cause a fish to swallow him. No wonder they were converted through the fear of God. Some are saved through the fear of God's righteous judgment. In fact, that's how I came to the Lord originally. I was five years old. I heard the message of salvation and of judgment every day. Uh, three days a week, I should say, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, because my dad was a preacher, a Baptist preacher. And Baptists like to talk about hell. At least we did back then, you know. And so every night I said, Jesus, save me. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to burn. Until one night, the Holy Spirit asked me, don't you want me because I love you? And that night I was saved. The fear of God brought me to the love of God. Thank you, Lord. Last week I spoke on the, on the reasons that we should believe God could prepare such a fish in which Jonah could br breathe. And if, if, you, if you doubt that's possible, grab last week's message. It's out there in the box or pull it up online because I have no doubt he could do such a thing. I've swum with whale sharks with a mouth big enough to swallow me. I showed you a video last week of two kayakers being swallowed by a humpback and then spitting them out unharmed. I can't imagine the fear Jonah must have felt during that moment as that mouth engulfed him. One moment he's in the light of the day and the next minute he's in total darkness. Verse one, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. So we don't know for certain when he began to pray this prayer in the, that series of, of the three days and three nights, but the last chapter ended by saying he was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And that leads me to believe that this prayer was prayed at the end of the three days and three nights. The ESV begins this chapter um, chapter 2 with the word then. He was in the belly three days, three nights. Then he prays this prayer. Uh, other translations start with the word and, but either translation might imply that it was after those three days and three nights that he finally prayed. Verse 7 tells us it was when he thought he was about to die. The bars of death. Jonah was a very, very reluctant prophet. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis' conversion. He, he said, I, I was the most reluctant convert, con convert in the world. I came crick, screaming and kicking into the kingdom of God. Perhaps he thought he didn't deserve to be heard. But then none of us deserves our voice to be heard by God. 
We all need to hear what God has to say to us, but we're not worthy to bear his message, but his grace uses us anyway. Hallelujah. I am not worthy can be a cop-out. None of us is worthy. Finally, as Jonah thinks his life is slipping away, he finally prays to the Lord God. Friends, don't wait until you get to that place. There are deathbed conversions, but why wait? God is gracious and good, and he loves each one of us, and he wants to guide our lives into his goodness. Prayer should be as constant as breathing. It's the breath of our spirits. Verse 2, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, and you heard my voice. This is the beginning of a, of a long poem in Hebrew. You know, if we won't pray, God can put us in situations where we're desperate to pray. I heard uh, somebody say that uh, they can outlaw prayer in school, but as long as there are tests, there will be prayer. We could say we put ourselves into those situations because of our disobedience. It's often been said that addicts have to reach the very end of themselves before they make the change. Sin is addictive. Satan gives us momentary pleasure from sin. The book of Hebrews tells us that Moses forsook the temporary fleeting pleasures of Egypt to follow God. We bring ourselves to the very bottom or God creates situations into our lives in which we have nowhere else to turn. Jonah, sitting in the darkness of that fish belly, finally came to the realization that his only hope was to surrender to God. A sincere cry for help is music to God's ears. It means we finally see our true condition like a child who's wandered into a batch of poison ivy in which his father's told him to never go, we cry out with the resulting pain. The word of God declares that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. God's heart is full of tender compassion. He spreads that calamine lotion over our welts and lets us put our heads on his chest as we sob in our misery. His voice is soothing and kind, even though we brought it upon ourselves through disobedience. Jonah had hidden God's word in his heart so that when he needed to cry out to God, he could cry out in Scripture. The Scriptures that came to him, no doubt prompted by the Holy Spirit, were from the Messianic Psalms in the Book of Psalms. You know, there are certain Psalms that are about the Messiah. They're, they're uh, like prophetic psalms about the future of the coming Messiah. And almost every psalm that he quotes in his prayer is from a messianic psalm. No wonder then Jesus said Jonah was this uh, illustration of what was going to happen to him. The scriptures that came to him prompted by the Holy Spirit. Jonah wrote that he called out from the belly of Sheol. Sheol is in Hebrew the grave. He's relating where he is with the grave. He compares the belly of the fish with a tomb. He probably thought it was his grave until he heard the Lord's answer. 
This further connects us with Jesus in the tomb. And it's no wonder Jesus said the only sign of his authority that he would give would be the sign of the prophet Jonah. God heard Jonah's cry. He was waiting to hear Jonah finally surrender. And I believe God rejoiced to hear that prayer. The Song of Songs tells us that the groom longs to hear our voice. How much more so when it's an expression of our love and our commitment rather than our desperate plea to get us out of the mess that we create for ourselves. But no matter how great a mess or no matter how far we fall, if we call out, we will be heard. He will answer us, even though we don't deserve an answer. Verse 3, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Quotations from Psalm 88, 7 and 42, verse 7, make up verse 3. Jonah prays these expressions that he was familiar with from the book of Psalms. Psalm 18.6, in my distress, I called on the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple. Psalm 42.7, deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. And Psalm 31.22, for I said in my haste, I'm cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplication when I cried out to you. Praying scriptures is one way of identifying with the psalmist and God's faithfulness to those people that prayed. We're praying God's word when we do that, and we couldn't choose better words. Jonah had obviously memorized them or was at least very familiar with them. If we're not students of Scripture, we won't have those words of Scripture to pray in our times of desperation. These verses he drew from directly related to what he was going through. The, the psalmist was speaking figuratively, but Jonah was physically experiencing those descriptions. You know, in Scripture, the, the wicked are compared to the waves of the sea. Isaiah tells us that. So does Jude. We sometimes speak of the sea of humanity. We even do the wave at sporting events. These messianic psalms that Jonah's referring to were ultimately fulfilled in what our Savior experienced during his suffering on our behalf. Verse 4, Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The entire poem contrasts psalms that describe his situation with hope found in the psalms that tell us that God hears our cry. In this verse, he alludes to, Psalm 31, 22, he is carried to the depths where people of that day thought the dead were resided. He thought he could escape God's presence by taking that ship to Tarshish. Now he sees God sending him away from his presence to the grave. But he declares by faith that he will again visit the temple in Jerusalem and worship there because God has heard his prayer. 
This implies that he will first obey God and go and prophesy to Nineveh, survive, which it sounds like he was doubtful of previously, and return to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice of praise. He's still in the fish. He's still in utter darkness. But the light in his soul is now beginning to shine with hope. Faith believes God has heard before it sees the results. Verse 5, The waters closed over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. The first lines um, are similar to Psalm 18.4. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. While in that great fish, the water was still threatening to drown him. Seaweed wraps around his head. It's not as if he's just sitting in the belly of that fish, twiddling his thumbs, waiting until he's puked up. He's fighting for his life there. The fish apparently went on a deep dive. He could probably tell because of the constant need to clear the pressure in his head. And even if he could get out of the fish, he probably wouldn't make it to the surface alive. He feels as though the gates of death were closing in on him. Closed upon me forever means death is final. It's like saying, we would say, I knew I was a goner. But then he expresses faith. I was a goner, yet, but God, he brought up his life from the pit. You know, in, in Hebrew, or in this culture at that time, the pit refers to the place that the bones of the family are kept. They would hew a big hole in limestone, and as a person died and their body decayed, they'd take the family bones and put it in the pit with all your ancestors that went before you. And so he's saying, he's really expressing faith that he's going to be raised from the dead. Here we have another of those interesting word connections with Jesus' suffering. Psalm 88 was quoted in the beginning of verse 3. It's a messianic psalm about Jesus being held in a pit, which is a waterless cistern or that, that they hew into the limestone. At the home of the high priest, Caiaphas, uh, there was such a pit. It's been discovered by archaeologists, and it's now a tourist site because they believe that Jesus was held in that pit the night before the morning trial. That psalm ends with the gloomy expression of darkness being his only friend, which is what Jesus and Jonah experienced. But God brought Jesus up from that pit and from the pit of the tomb, just as he brought Jonah up from the depths of the sea. This is one of the many but God passages that remind us of the wonderful intervention of God in our lives, in the lives of those who turn to him. In Jesus' case, it wasn't weeds wrapped around his head, but thorns. And Genesis 3.18 tells us both are signs of the curse of sin. 
Jonah bore them for his own actions. Jesus bore them for ours. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Jonah was having a deathbed conversion, though he didn't die. He knew that if he died in that state of rebellion, he didn't want to face the holy God. He remembered God. I don't think he forgot God, but rather that he remembered that God is merciful. So he cried out to him. Jonah is the Old Testament story of the prodigal found in the New Testament. Like the prodigal son, Jonah had finally come to his senses and realized the father's presence was the best place to be. Jews believed that the presence of God was in the Holy of Holies, in the temple. In Solomon's dedication of the temple, his prayer asked God to hear the prayers that were prayed toward that place. That's why Jews even today gather at the Western Wall to pray. It was an expression of faith that God heard his prayer of repentance. And that's what he may be referring to in the next verses. Verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Had Jonah put his hope in some vain thing, such as living for comfort and wealth in Tarshish? That would be a vain idol. It's the subtle, powerful seduction of the world. It can never give the comfort and peace that it promises. And when we settle for something in this world, we forsake our hope and the most frequently recorded attribute of God, his steadfast love. Perhaps that's why Jonah said, just throw me in the sea and your troubles will be over. He'd forsaken his hope in the steadfast love of God. When the world lures you away from the hope we have in God, all that's left are vain idols. They offer hope, but they can never deliver. What hope does an idol offer in the face of death? I've been many, with many people when they were dying. There was no, they no longer cared about their money or possessions. There was no longer any illusion of hope in the perfect vacation or the perfect partner or some possession saving them. I believe Jonah could make the declaration in verse 8 because he had experienced it. Clinging to lying promises of idols is to abandon the steadfast love of God. Verse 9, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is Jonah's declaration of a repentant heart. He will vocalize his gratitude as he offers himself as a living sacrifice. He vows to fulfill his role as a prophet, and he will go to Nineveh. This is not a reluctant, oh, well, if I'm going to die anyway, I might as well do what you want me to do, even though I hate doing it. No, this is a voice of praise declaring he's had a change of heart and that he will with gratitude serve God whose steadfast love is new every morning. He ends his prayer with a declaration. Salvation belongs to the Lord. First, we have to realize 
We've been clinging to worthless, worthless idols. And then we can receive a revelation that the Lord is the one who saves. He realized God had kept him alive in that raging sea and in the belly of the fish. And though he feels death's door has closed behind him, he knows the Savior can deliver him. That phrase is really interesting if you look at it in Hebrew. Deliverance or salvation is the name of Jesus. In Aramaic, it's Yeshua. And this verse declares Yeshua, Jesus, belongs to Yahweh, the God of Israel. It's also a quotation from Psalm chapter 3, verse 8. It can be translated, Yeshua makes peace with God. And that's the message of salvation. That's the message that Jesus came to bring. I came, and we just celebrated it. I came to take your punishment that you might have peace with God. Why could God have mercy on Jonah? God's just, God's holy. He can't just overlook his rebellion. But Jesus, 750 years later, would come and die for Jonah and for you and for me. Do you think your situation's hopeless? That the doors of death are closing on you? Hope in the steadfast love of God. Know that Jesus had made peace with God on your behalf. He is who he declared himself to be, the resurrection and the life. Have faith and know he has heard your prayer. He promises to hear the prayer of faith. He hears for he is near each one of us. His ear is especially available to the crushed in spirit. His mercy is new every morning. His steadfast love is greater than we can possibly imagine. Verse 10, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Prayer answered. Only now, Jonah's covered in fish vomit and smells like the stench of his rebellion to remind him how far he had fallen. He has hundreds of miles yet to go to get to Nineveh, his sins sent him on quite a detour, but that's what sin always does. This chapter may be the happiest section in the entire book. That's a warning for future sermons. These verses contain the story of a miracle and grace, of praise and thanksgiving, of deliverance and of renewed hope. Jonah still has a long road and many lessons ahead of him, but today we end on this positive note of restoration. It's restoration God desires for all prodigals, no matter how far they have fallen. In these verses are found the education of the pouting prophet and the affirmation of God's sovereignty. It's God who's the most important character. He's the one who affects salvation, and he's the one who enables deliverance. Neither Jonah nor the fish had control. It was God and God alone. Because Jesus tells us that the scriptures are about him, and because he told us his sign to the unbelievers is that of Jonah in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so would the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. Our main lesson from this account should be how it foreshadows Jesus, who went to the grave for our sins, but also having faith in resurrection and the power of God 
as seen in his declaration that after three days he would rise. Are you ready to get puked out of the belly of the fish? Yeshua Jesus makes peace with God. Believe it, receive it, and you will land on dry ground. You may have to uh, deal with some fish vomit, but you're on your way to an adventure with God. Amen? Amen. Let's close with prayer. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this message of hope. Jonah knew better, and we know better, and yet we often fail. We thank you, your steadfast love endures forever. And Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, may you transform our lives so that we walk in the Spirit, so that our lives glorify you, that the light, your light shine through us as we live in this fallen world. Lord, thank you for this chapter, for, for Jonah's faith, for how you turned him around and how it gives us hope that no matter how far we've fallen, you're there to hear our cry if we will repent and turn back to you. So thank you, Lord, again for this chapter. Be with us as we go. And Lord, bless the meal downstairs and all those hands that prepared it. May it nourish us to do your will and bless our fellowship as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you, lift up his countenance upon you, and give you his peace.